the only way to score is of course to play uh, with a handbrake off. I'm Ian Stone. This is Handbrake Off, the Arsenal podcast for The Athletic. I'm joined by the writers Amy Lawrence and James McNicholas. Hello, guys. Hello, mate. How you doing? Hi, yeah, I'm good. Hello, Amy. How's it going? It's going the same as it was last week. <laughs> and um, also by the Arsenal ledge, that is Mr Lee Dixon. Hello, Lee. Good morning. Very deja vu-y today. Yes, I can only agree. Uh, now, in a short while, uh, we are going to have perhaps a semi-serious chat about mega-rich football clubs furloughing their non-playing staff and getting the taxpayer to pick up the tab. Uh, we're also, by the way, on a lighter note, going to talk about uh, our favourite cup finals in more detail. Uh, before we do that, uh, we thought we'd come up with our cult cup final heroes. That's not an easy thing to say. Um, let's start with Amy Lawrence. Amy? It's Andy Linegan. Um, that was just, uh, when you look back at the uh, 1993 cup final, which was when he was the, um, the, the, the goal-scoring hero who won the day and actually prevented it from being, I think, what would have been the first cup final ever decided by penalties. It was a replay against Sheffield Wednesday and um, in, in, the, in the game, went, it went to extra time and in the last minute of extra time, I think he'd had his nose broken, um, smashed across his face during the game by Mark Bright, and he uh, rose bravely to head the ball in for a, for a, a last-minute cup winner. Um, Arsenal were quite good at those once upon a time. And I think in the celebrations, a lot of the players were really deliberately pointing at Andy and trying to make sure that he got the credit that he deserved because maybe his Arsenal career wasn't quite as... Uh, as magnificent as people had felt. He came, I think, the same summer as Anders Limpar and Dave Seaman, who both went on to be brilliant Arsenal players. And Andy was a bit more peripheral, but he came in and did the job. And he was a real no-nonsense guy. Uh, and I, I remember after, I can't remember where it was, somewhere in some bar um, many moons ago, uh, a few of the lads were out and Andy had this catchphrase that night. I don't know, Lee might be able to tell me more whether this was a catchphrase that he used all the time, but he definitely mm. used it on this particular evening where he sort of licked his finger and sort of wiped it across his eyebrow kind of with a sort of James Bond style looking face and went, call me old fashioned or call me a good looking bastard. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, that, that was, uh, that was absolutely hundred percent true. <laughs> James, what have you got for us? Cult hero is always a tricky one because you know, I feel like I should be choosing quite a niche player, you know, someone who is more on the fringes of things. But I actually have to say, I can't look past Per Mertesacker. And I know that he was, you know, a big player for years in this Arsenal team. But that particular performance against Chelsea in the cup final, I think enshrined him in, in Arsenal folklore, really. And let's not forget, he also scored in the cup final against Aston Villa too. He had an amazing record at Wembley, scored in a semi-final against Wigan. And it just felt like when the FA Cup came around is really when we saw the very, very best of him. So I'm going to go for Per Mertesacker. Only game he played that year as well, by yeah, the way. Yeah, incredible. Uh, Lee, what have you got? Because I'm an old, long-suffering, but not so much now, City fan, when I was a kid, my cult hero was Colin Bell. So I used to play inside forward, number eight on my back, and Colin Bell just epitomised that position and... 
I don't think anyone's ever played the inside right position any better um, then and now. But I completely agree with Amy and I'm going to have to go for two votes for Andy Linnigan because um, that final was the first time that we had kind of got to a position of winning a, the FA Cup and then it seemingly sort of drifting away from us and going into the longest ever, um, most boring cup final again. Um, and up he steps with his smashed up face. And I've yet to confirm this, but I'm pretty sure that after he retired, Andy, he went back on the tools, as he used to say, because he was a plumber by trade. Um, and he said, oh, what are you up to now? And he goes, oh, I'm back on the tools, Dicko. And, I, and apparently, and uh, I, I think, I don't know if this is folklore, it's rumour or what, but um, apparently on the side of his van where he goes to mend people's le uh, leaks, etc., he's got Andy Linnigan, great player, great plumber, <laughs> on the side of his van. <laughs> Which absolutely would suit him down to the ground because he had a really dry sense of humour and that would have been... So I've not seen the van, but somebody told me that's what he's got on the side of his van. So I think that's brilliant. Uh, anyone who knows approximately where Andy Linnigan lives now, have a look out for the van. Uh, let us know if that's true. Lee, can I ask you a question, by the way, about Colin Bell? Is it yeah. true or is it an urban myth that they were talking about naming a stand after him but they thought they can't call it the Bell End? Um, I don't know, but it's a good story. So let's say it's true. Yeah, let's do that. <laughs> um, uh, for a cult hero, I mean, some people might not like this, but I've chosen Willie Young against West Ham in 1980 <laughs> for <laughs> what I consider to be the worst thing I think I've ever seen at a football ground. When little Allen, what was it? Paul Allen, was it? Going through on goal, he's 17, he's going to score a goal in the cup final. And our six-foot-two-inch <laughs> centre-half just clattered, brings him down with a professional foul. Well, I found it tremendously funny, I've got to be honest with you. And the outrage <laughs> made me laugh even more. So uh, that's mine. Uh, I could have gone for Eddie Kelly, but I think Willie Young is funnier. Um, we are going to talk about our favourite cup finals. Uh, before we do, there is a, a big story. Well, obviously, coronavirus is a huge story. Uh, but there's a particular football-related story, which is about football clubs uh, furloughing their non-playing staff and getting the taxpayer to pick up the tab. And there's been, uh, and at the same time, there's been a lot of uh, stuff in the newspapers and, and what have you and online about maybe footballers should take a massive pay cut or even a 30% pay cut or whatever to, to help people out. I mean, Lee, uh, as someone who played and earned, uh, I'm assuming, decent money, uh, particularly in the later stages of your career, would the players have got together and talked about stuff like that at any point if, if, if something like that had happened when you were playing? Yeah, absolutely. I think um, there's no doubt that discussions would have been had in the behind closed doors in the dressing room, um, regardless of the pressure from the outside world. I mean, football is an, an easy target and quite rightly so should be a focus of attention like all industries and, and money-making um, institutions should be uh, in these unprecedented times where help is needed all over the place. Everybody should be looking at themselves and, no, and football's no different than that. I think the... Um, the discussions behind closed doors are, are absolutely right. I think the furloughing of staff when it started to be um, talked about was uncomfortable, to say the least, from 
from my point of view, looking in. And I think Liverpool have done the right thing and changed their mind. It was kind of made the blood boil a little bit when the chance to make a stance, irrespective of that pressure that's been put on from the outside, um, was that the, the clubs were talking about what they were going to do, etc. It's only right and fit and proper that football has a chance to make a difference and you know looking after the staff and also the players make contributions both charity wise and giving time giving money loads of stuff goes on behind closed doors you can ask you know ask the ask amy and james about what they know about what players do for charity etc so um but the, the the public sort of scrutiny of it i think is wrong um, and too many people jump on the bandwagon early doors with these things and say, oh, they should be doing this, should be doing that. Football will do its thing, but when the big clubs, um, and certainly Tottenham, Liverpool and uh, and a few others have been, have kind of let let the side down, they've, they Liverpool have done the right thing in my in my opinion. Um, and it's a, we talk about it all the time, about being a, a football family. Um and it's you know now's the time to to show that and and all link arms and and do the right thing. Amy, do you think the pressure? I mean, I know Lee was talking about the pressure, and aside from that, the players may have acted anyway. But do you think the pressure did make a difference? I mean, I know Harry Maguire basically got to get, uh, got the team together and and basically said, right, let's all give thirty percent of our wages. Do you think that would have happened without the pressure from outside? Uh, I'd like to think so. Um, as Lee mentioned, I think a lot of high earners in the game are very conscientious about their charitable support, but they tend to do things quietly. It's not, you know, not everybody is comfortable almost virtue signalling by saying, look at me, I'm, I'm paying for this or I'm, I'm, I'm supporting that. Uh, there's, there's tons that wealthy people do and that's not just restricted to footballers like in, like in any walk of life some people are very um, greedy with their money and some people are more generous at, at that top end of the, of the scale and I think this whole debate has made me slightly uncomfortable only in the sense that I never really understood why footballers were getting um, I mean yes I can see that it's 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 interesting publicity and it, it, it you know people like to see an example of something but Surely it would just make more sense to take a certain amount of earnings that people have in different walks of life, be they in the media, be they uh, in film, be they in business, bankers, uh, whatever, um, and say, OK, if you are earning a, a certain amount, then there will be an extra contribution at this uh, unprecedented time to help others who are struggling or who are going to lose their jobs or be more vulnerable. Um, I'd, I'd be much more comfortable with that. I think it's also worth recognising that, you know, we talk about football as this entire entity and people look at the, at, the, at the most famous and the highest earners. But there's lots of people in football who are uh, not earning um, enough to be able to, to withstand a 30% standardised pay cut and not feel that that's a, a financial pressure. Um, I mean, just even looking at Arsenal, the club employs... I know around about 800 people, uh, I think, as full-time staff these days. Now, of those 800, what kind of percentage do we think are pulling in a massive wage? Well, obviously, there's a lot uh, who are in relatively mundane jobs in the business somewhere, um, making the club tick, who will be on, you know, a, a very 
sort of not not that impressive wage for living in London with London prices. Um, and I just don't think there, ha- there should be a sort of standardised one size fits all approach to this. We have to everybody look at ourselves if we're lucky and think, how can we help? And if you're not lucky, then you're reliant on other people. And James, do you think, I mean, footballers have been singled out and as a number of people I've seen on um, on social media said, what about CEOs and film stars and all the rest of it? There's plenty of other people who, and, and also, by the way, um, uh, Arsblog, who I know you work with regularly, uh, said, what about the owners? Stan Kroenke is worth billions uh, and the owners collectively are worth tens of billions. What about them? Yeah, and I, I think that the statement that came out from the PFA did turn the focus a little bit on those people who who own the clubs, you know, who who could save a lot of money by furloughing, but have a lot of money. And I think that it's important that that those are looked at too, not just players. I, I can't help but feel sometimes with footballers, you know, that they make a lot of money, but I feel like sometimes there's a bit of a, a snobbery and a sense of like, well, you know, they've they've done very well for themselves and thus therefore they're obliged to to behave a certain way, to kind of almost be apologetic about it. Um, I think the vast majority of footballers will be happy to give money to, you know, whatever causes require it, the NHS or, or otherwise, you know, on the right terms. And if they feel like there's support as well from the club side. And I also think that it's important that we don't, you know, Amy's right, apply a blanket rule here. I think situations are different, certainly within football. You know, the Premier League's a different scale of wealth to other divisions. And even within the Premier League, you know, Brighton are an example of a club who have kind of led the way on this. I mean, their manager, their directors took pay cuts pretty much before any other Premier League club. They committed to pay staff pretty much before every other Premier League club. But they also have been very open about the fact that they may have to furlough some staff in order to safeguard their future so you know their their financial wealth is a very different thing to Liverpool's and the enormous profit they made last year um it's a really interesting thing and as a as an Arsenal fan I kind of can't help but hope that the Arsenal owners have watched what's happened with Liverpool and sort of you know learned a bit of a lesson from that you know I wouldn't like to see the club go down the same path I think it depends how long this goes on for James I mean that's the problem which is uh, I I think anybody who imagines their club hasn't hasn't looked into it, and hasn't been sorely tempted, and is maybe just doing a little bit of watch this space. Because uh, I think any club, no matter how profitable or how much turnover they have, and I think we can include Arsenal in this, uh, will have examined it and wondered if and when they might be uh, availing themselves of, of this scheme. Well, yeah, I, I mean, as uncomfortable as I might feel about it, you know, Liverpool turned sort of something like an 80 million profit last year. Arsenal are currently operating at a loss. So if Liverpool looked at it, you can bet your bottom dollar that, that Arsenal have too. Yeah, this uh, no doubt will uh, continue and we may well talk about it again. In the meantime, uh, we thought we would uh, talk about uh, our favourite cup finals. <laughs> Thanks to our good pals at Beer52.com, you have the opportunity to sip eight, yes, eight delicious, painstakingly sourced craft beers from around the world. All you need to do is go to www.beer52.com forward slash athletic and pay the postage of £4.95. And as if that wasn't enough, as a listener of the Athletic Podcast, you'll get two extra free beers. So that's 10 free beers for those slow at maths. Beer 52 are beer pioneers. 
They travel the globe to find the best and most interesting beer from the greatest craft breweries planet Earth has to offer. No surprise then, they are the world's most popular craft beer discovery club. Each month, Beer 52 deliver a case with a different theme. Themes have included Germany, Korea, Belgium, South Africa, California, New Zealand and many more. But they haven't forgotten their roots. As an independent UK company, Beer 52 are also passionate about the UK craft beer scene. The beauty of Beer 52 is that you can leave at any time. The power is in your hands. Your case will also include the award-winning craft beer magazine Ferment and a beery snack is thrown in just to top it all off. Just go to www.beer52.com forward slash athletic to get your free case. And don't forget, right now, the Athletic listeners get two extra free beers. James, tell us what you've picked out. Yeah, I picked uh, 2002, uh, the FA Cup final win over Chelsea in Cardiff. Oh, nice. Uh, the one I didn't play in. Thank you. <laughs> you did feature watching... in the replay, though, Lee, at the end. I did see that. When they showed the goal, you were standing behind there. In fact, Ray Parler runs pretty much straight to Lee. Uh, I watched it back this morning. Lee yeah. stood there in the corner. He's first at the celebration, so there is that. But, uh, <laughs> yeah, it was, a, it was a great day out. And as I've said, mentioned on here before, I've got a lot of Chelsea fans in my family, and I actually... Uh, experienced the joy of travelling back from Cardiff with some of them. They were absolutely miserable as sin, and I was over the moon. That was a good day, that. It was a good day. That, that was the most fun, going to Cardiff, I think. Yeah, we had the League Cup final there. I can't remember which one it was, but one of them, there was terrible traffic and loads of fans were sort of backed up and got into the game late. I think it was the League Cup final. 2002 was a great day. Obviously, two brilliant goals as well. Ray Parler and uh, Freddie Jumberg, who was absolutely on fire at that point. We'd lost Robert Perez to injury and Jumberg completely took over the mantle, really scored the goals that, that drove us to the double. And I was watching it back and Ray Parler, you know, he was a slight surprise starter because I think Edu had been in really good form alongside Patrick Vieira in the central midfield. Parler came in and obviously, you know, stamps his name on that final. Uh, there was also, by the way, the classic Tim Lovejoy moment, which we only heard about later on. <laughs> yeah. when, uh, on on the commentary, he said, "Oh, it's only Ray Parler." To give you, I mean, that was a team, though. By the way, uh, Dave Seaman in goal, Laura and Sol Campbell, Tony Adams and Ashley Cole, Silver and Wiltord, Ray Parler, Patrick Vieira, Lundberg, Burkamp, and Henri. Uh, and uh, the bench bench was all right, I suppose. Uh, <laughs> bench was old. <laughs> Lee Dixon, Martin Keown, Carnu, and Edu. Uh, yeah, that was uh, that was a half decent team. It was a decent Chelsea team as well, although not the Chelsea team that used to spank us uh, on a regular uh, basis. Amy, were you there? You were there, of course you were. I certainly was. And um, one thing I would say is, um, I wonder if because of the, uh, the the Tim Lovejoy, it's only Ray Parler kind of iconic um, commentary. Whether in a way Freddie Jungberg's goal is slightly overlooked because Parlers is the one that is really definitively remembered for that game, and actually Freddie Jungberg's goal was phenomenal as well. Yeah, well, if you go goal. back, if you go back to that goal, we talk about a celebration of Ray. My celeb- I was right behind the post um, when Freddie got the ball, and I was warming up probably six yards from where Cudicini was standing in the goal and I was I was kind of not trying to put him off but I wanted to get a good view of the game so I thought I'll watch it right behind his goal and uh, I was doing stretches and then when he checked onto his right foot and curled the ball in I kind of started to come up from my you'll see it on the everyone's seen it it's quite but the, the best bit about it was 
the fact that I ran off before it hit the net was because I heard Cudicini's. I heard Cudicini go, oh, when it was in the air. So I knew <laughs> that because goalies know, goalies absolutely know what's going on. And he knew it was he, he wasn't going to get anywhere near it. So as soon as I heard him go, oh, I was off because I knew it was going in. So uh, and then that was the only sprint I did during the day. <laughs> <laughs> and by the way, Freddie Lundberg outmuscled John Terry uh, at that yeah. point, left him on the floor, which was very impressive as well. I was just wondering when, what kind of a difference is there in your relationship towards a final, or how you enjoy it, or celebrate, or whatever, if you play or if you don't? Well, I have no clue where the medal is. Put it that way. So um, I was telling a lie. It's in a box. But it's not. It's not. With the others, it's kind of like the it's like the black sheep of the medal family. It's like put to one side because obviously, it, it does it doesn't mean as much. Obviously, um, and I tried my best. I did everything I could to get on the pitch. Um, my last season, looking at Arsene, warming up in front of him, basically getting in his way, shouting his name, telling him to get put me on. At one point, I got off for a warm up, and I said, "You got to put me on then," and he. <laughs> He kind of like just ignored me. I think, you know, I needed maybe a third or fourth goal to go in and then he probably would have sentiment would have put me on. But it was, uh, yeah, you don't enjoy him as much, that's for sure. Well, just to annoy you, Martin Keown did come on, come on, on the in the 89th minute. Yeah, so I, what could have been... I do, I do know that, Amy, thank you. <laughs> <laughs> the other thing to say about that game is that, of course, I think it was just five days before... Arsenal went to Old Trafford and won the league. So they did the double, you know, in the matter mm. of days. And mm. I guess, Lee, like being in the camp at that time, is it just a question of you just take those completely separately? Is anyone thinking even about Old Trafford when you're building up to the FA Cup final? No, you, I mean, it crosses your mind um, maybe a few days before, but the the game is so you're, you're so focused mentally on how difficult it is to to play at that level consistently and have to churn out the results and the performances out that consistently that's the biggest thing about playing for a top team is you have to do it every single minute of every single game there's no like oh do you know what I don't fancy it today so and because you you've got those goals set in front of you and you and they're achievable you 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 flip from one sort of scenario to the next really quickly so as soon as you get into FA Cup mode you kind of right this is it you've got you know one game at a time and all of that rubbish but that is what you do and then as soon as the game's over you kind of like what's next and is there anything next and it's only when the season's over that you actually go Oh, and your shoulders drop and you take a sigh and you actually start then to to realise what you've achieved or what you haven't achieved. You know, some 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 seasons, 99, particularly when we probably should have won the double that year, but United went on to win the treble. So that, that summer wasn't a great summer because you kind of go, and it could have been so different if I'd have just tripped gigs up. <laughs> <laughs> I just yeah. said what you were thinking. No, quite what we thought at the time and what we're still thinking now. Uh, that was we did have the sign over Chelsea in those days. I must say, Lee, what's your favourite cup final? Probably from a um, a defensive unit point of view, and being you know with my mates, my four mates, Dixon, uh, Adams, Bold, and Winterburn. I'd, I'd have to go for the um, the Palmer game, Cup Winners <sighs> Cup final. Um, against all odds and all of that lot. I mean, we could have quite easily lost that game about 5-0. 
the first half we got absolutely battered at times and um you know they had a really good side uh, Palmer with Asprilla um Zola but Brolin in that first half he he had about five or six chances and it, it's just it was wave after wave and then even you know after um Alan Smith scored we go into the second half and um it was literally like the Alamo they were just coming from every single angle and it was last dip ditch tattles there was things getting thrown on the pitch from the from the Palmer fans it was quite hostile at down that end of the pitch uh, although we had a lot of fans there that that the the Italian fans were all kind of behind Dave's goal and there was all sorts coming on you know there was lighters there was bolts there was nuts and bolts there was all sorts coming on the pitch and so it was kind of like a very much backs against the wall come on we can do this and when you think about the the team that we put out that day with the <clears throat> the injuries that we had and Stephen Morrow and and Ian Selly being centre midfield with Paul Davis, you kind of look at that midfield and you go, God, their midfield looks miles better than ours. But you know, even we were thinking that. I think even Ian Ian Selly and Stephen Morrow and Davo were going, God, this is going to be tough. But you know, the the, the way that um, we set up. The game, the way that George played in in Europe, you know, he always changed the system. We switched from four four two to four three three nearly every uh, European game, and um, it was just a brilliant night to be part of. And we really got a sense of achievement defensively. That's for sure. Well, Amy, you wanted to talk about that game as well. I mean, were you confident going into it, Amy? Uh, I think so. I mean, the whole one nil to the Arsenal. Uh, thing had been born that season uh, mm. in the semi-final against Paris Saint-Germain away from home at half-time that they were they were singing Ole Paris Saint-Germain to to that tune and it very quickly got adopted uh, in the Arsenal end and, and stuck obviously for a long time to come um, but I, I'd gone to uh, a lot of the European games uh, that season and that 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 excitement that you get as a fan about traveling to European games is above and beyond you know, your regular football going experience. And we had so much fun. And we went to Copenhagen for five days. Um, sort of stayed on a friend of a friend's floor and there was a whole bunch of us, all of our mates. And I have such fond memories of like this magical golden time. And I think there was confidence because we were young and, it's, you know, everybody thought that there was a bit more kind of a sense of the unknown about what Palmer would be. But you just thought, well, Serie A, they're bound to be brilliant. And um, I do remember being in a... a pub I think the night before the game full of Arsenal fans everyone was singing and having a good time and this bloke was sick standing on his own at the bar sort of trying to make friends with people um, and he you know we, people thought he was just a local guy and he went over to a few people's big sort of blonde Viking character and says hello I'm from Finland I'm a seaman <laughs> and the whole pub goes seaman seaman like at this guy and he he was totally bewildered and didn't know what was going on and obviously a little bit of an explanation later. Anyway, I think he had the best night of his life as well. He was being bought drinks all night. It was that kind of atmosphere uh, that you love about going to away games. And um, my one of my bestest friends at the time and still now, who's a very sensible guy, but that day went for it. Um, when it was time to go to the match to sort of walk from where everyone was preparing for the game to the actual match he he exceeded what was a probably sensible amount of alcoholic uh, pre-match um, <laughs> and basically was asleep on the pavement 
and we could not get him up. Uh, we had about, there was about 20 of us who had, I think we had two rows of 10 inside the stadium. And we were trying to sort of, he just was waving us off like, no, he, was, he just wanted to sleep. So we, we didn't really know what to do. And eventually we thought, well, we've got to go to the game. So we, like really great friends, we, we left him. Because <laughs> um, it was like, t- you know, time yeah. was ticking down. And about one minute before the game was about to start, my dear friend made his way through, you know, along the aisle and appeared a little bleary-eyed and somehow made his way to the game. Um, it was absolutely phenomenal in the, inside the park and it felt a bit like Highbury. It was a square, rectangular yeah. red stadium. Uh, was, the Arsenal fans are very much kind of uh, uh, dominated in terms of numbers and, and it, it felt incredible to be that feeling that, your team is in a European final felt really important in those days because Arsenal hadn't been in many European finals and the ones since haven't gone that well. Uh, so it remains a kind of golden moment. Just a word for David Seaman, um, your old mate Lee, who mm. uh, had, I think he said, four painkilling injections before the game and two at half time to get him yeah. through the match. Which I had to hold his hand. He made me hold his he made me hold his hand for the ones at half time because he was hurt so much pre match and then he had wow. him and I, I said do you want me to hold the hand and went in kind of it, honestly he was in so much pain I just tell, quickly tell you a story about and this has changed with over over years folklore one of those stories but I was actually there and I can't remember the actual true story but the essence of it is that when we got to the stadium and I can't remember whether it was the day before when we trained at the stadium or it was actually the day of the game but when we arrived we went underneath the stand to get to the dressing room to get changed or what and there was a there was the podium was there with a Palmer name already on it oh. um so they kind of got an Arsenal sign and it also got a Palmer sign now I, I, I that story went round when I was actually there and I can't remember the true story but the essence of it is that they'd already kind of gone, well, we might as well stick it up now because Palmer are going to win. And the lads were like, really? Let's do this. And that, that was kind of like the team spirit throughout the, 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 the run into that final. I don't think, even though at times during the game, it felt like we could lose it at any point. I think deep down we kind of knew we'd already won it going into it. That was the that was the night of Georgie Graham's magic hat. Um, yeah. Were you were the players? I mean, there was a lot of noise from the Arsenal fans. There was about eighty percent Arsenal fans in the stadium. Uh, did the players notice that during the game? Um, yeah. I, I mean, we made a difference, right? Absolutely. It was you know Amy hits the nail on the head. It was quite a, a hybrid feel to the stadium very steep stands and and the three quarters of it if not more was was totally arsenal and we we almost in the warm-up kind of felt as if we'd won the game because it was like we can't let this lot down you know this is going to be our night and then the game started and it was i kept looking at boldy and, and tony going we're going to win this aren't we I could, we're getting absolutely mullered any chance of you picking somebody up brothers and you know we were all having a, it was kind of like what are you doing running about Brolin had a field day but we managed to uh, managed to keep him out and um, yeah it was I can't really remember the celebrations after they were that good nor can, nor can we, I think. And the other thing I want to ask about was Alan Smith. He's talked in his autobiography about how he was a bit, he was in a bit of a depression at the time because his status was changing, right? He was coming in. Um, I mean, it, that was a, I mean, it may be underappreciated goal there, I think, that he scored. Yeah, it was typical him. You know, it was, he was a brilliant striker, uh, Alan. And, um, you know, the, the biggest compliment you can, you can ever 
I can ever pay to him was my dad asked after watching him for five, six years or whatever it was, my dad asked, said to me, is Alan Smith right-footed or left-footed? <laughs> and I went, there you go. That's how good he is. Because you, you couldn't tell which was his best foot. He was just so, he was technically brilliant, Alan, and really strong, really bony and wiry. And he used to hurt lots of people in training because he was stronger than he looks. You know, he's got a, an accountant's haircut, but he didn't play like an accountant, that's for sure. <laughs> <laughs> James, anything to add to this game? And obviously you watched it. It was an amazing night. I actually don't because it, this predates me. I don't remember it at all. Uh, I was... How old are you? 11? I was seven, I think, for this final. So somewhat tragically, my sort of Arsenal consciousness kind of burst into life around Naeem. That's unfortunate baptism, I know. So let's get away from that subject as soon as possible. Let's do that. Um, I want to talk about Arsenal 3, Hull City 2. First Mm. trophy in quite some time. Um, I mean, really, for me, I remember, one, there were some interesting facts about it. One, that we didn't leave London for the entire run. We were drawn at home four times and then the semi-final and the final were at Wembley. Um, the second thing is uh, we beat Liverpool, Everton and Spurs. I mean, people said we had quite an easy semi and final, but one, we didn't make them easy, did we? I mean, we, we just about got through against Wigan uh, on penalties after Pair equalised in the 82nd minute because Wigan had knocked out Man City. Um, but the final... I don't know. I don't know. I've, I've discussed this with, with various friends of mine about how, I, how we dream football. And I tend to dream football in terms of comebacks. Uh, there's nothing I love more than a comeback. And coming back from 2-0 down to win the FA Cup final 3-2, uh, the way we did it as well, because we could have been 3-0 down as well. Kieran Gibbs cleared uh, one off the line and we could have been 3-0 down in the first 10 minutes. But coming back to win 3-2, beautifully sunny day. And as I've said to you on this podcast, I managed to get a great parking space at Preston Park, uh, just one stop away from Wembley Park. And I walked back with my son. It was the first time that me and Alexander had been to a winning cup final because he came to Birmingham. But let's not talk about that. Um, And I walked back. We walked back in the glorious sunshine, late, late afternoon, early evening sunshine, thinking that was one of the best days of my life. And I genuinely feel that now. It was the first trophy we won in, I don't know how long, eight, nine years. And um, it was a it was a good day. It's a great day. I mean, I've got another confession to make here, which is that I wasn't at that final because I. Uh, some people listening will know I also do comedy, and I had a gig, I had a show in Brighton, right at the <laughs> at the Fringe Festival in Brighton, and I I can't remember what time I was on, but I remember that I had about I had time to watch the first fifteen minutes of the game in the pub, so I sat in the pub. Uh, and watched Arsenal go 2-0 down and then had to go and be on stage. (laughs) Uh, But fortunately, uh, I came off. I sort of, by the time I came off, they were into extra time and things sort of righted themselves. But yeah, I think I I was probably absolutely terrible that day because I was just so depressed about the first 15 minutes of that match. All right, well, in the interest of full disclosure, I should say that I was on stage um, until about two minutes before Andy Linegan scored the winning goal in the 93 Cup final, <laughs> just by the way. Because um, it was a Thursday night, was it not? I think it, it was, was that yeah. one. Yeah, yeah. and I, had, I ran a little gig in Finchley, and that was on a Thursday night, and I couldn't cancel it. Um, Amy, what are your memories of the Arsenal-Hull game? That, By the way, Santi Cazorla, uh, I wow. miss him so much. And that free kick, I watched yes. it again this morning. What a shot. 
that was uh, that was the when you asked for my memories that was kind of what i was going to talk about that and the uh minutes that just preceded it and um there's something about is i suppose it's 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 part of that kind of a cycle of life and 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 how things things are that you go from being a kid that goes to then if you're lucky enough you maybe take your own kids and uh, I'd given a big, big build up to my eldest, who this was going to be his first cup final. I spent a long time explaining to him about the importance of Wembley and really o overdid it, actually. So two nil down and then nearly three with Kieran Gibbs's uh, clearance off the line. He promptly, uh, <laughs> you know, he was quite, quite little, but, you know, dissolved into inconsolable tears and begged me to take him home uh, about 15 minutes into the final. And uh, um, even if you did have a good parking spot, you still wouldn't really be minded to be uh, be leaving a cup final after 15 minutes. And we kind of couldn't make him stop crying for quite a long time. It, it was really like a, a, a d devastating. And we tried everything, all the things that you would say to turn someone around. You know, come on, the team needs your support. You've got to pull yourself together, or you know, et cetera, et cetera. Nothing was working. And uh, funnily enough, the same mate who was uh, uh, nearly asleep in Copenhagen on the pavement, turned around to my son uh, about a minute before Santi's goal and said, next goal wins. <laughs> That'll do uh, it. Yeah, do it. and then as soon as Santi scored this miraculous free kick, everyone looked at each other and it was like, see, yeah, next goal. And, and, and obviously <laughs> from that moment on, it became pretty much the best day of his, his life. Uh, my, my son, that is. So... Have great memories of it because it's something special when you experience a a, a final of, of that nature and like you say stony you you dream in in comebacks you know when you tell stories and when you, ima you know, imagine as a kid what you know what might happen if you're going to ever be a footballer it's about overcoming adversity you've got to get kicked about first you've got to be down on your knees and then have that moment of redemption and um I think, but you know, we're talking, obviously Aaron Ramsey with the winning goal. Giroud played a, an enormous part in that final. Uh, Koscielny was so brave, almost injuring himself to get the equaliser. It was a slog, though. I mean, Arsenal could have scored quite a lot of goals in that game once they got back into it, and could have had several penalties. It was one of those that was. Uh, yeah. When you look back at it again, there were some really dubious decisions, but it went the way that it went. But uh, above all else, I I think of Arsene when I think of that cup final. Because, you know, the pressure yeah. that he was under, and I think there was a lot of people expecting that his Arsenal time would end perhaps even before that cup final or irrespective of the result, maybe after it. And I think had Arsenal not won, then almost certainly that probably would have been the end uh, for Arsenal after the, the whole final. And um, he was under such pressure and they, that totting up of number of years without a trophy was so intense and in the celebrations when he gets kind of given the bumps is a really nice moment I think something symbolic about how the club felt that it was tough times and they wanted to get that that feeling of winning ways again um, I think when Arsene when we spoke about it once he talked about it being surreal at 2-0 down like he could, he almost couldn't believe it watching it from the sidelines that this story was no. unfolding in that way and almost paralysed by a sense of what do we do? I think the players really had to just dig themselves out of that hole. Um, and they did it for themselves and I think a bit for Arsene too. And for the fans who who needed a, 
needed to, be, to to remember what it felt like to be winners and also to win the first trophy since the move from Highbury to the Emirates. And that was another thing that Arson said where uh, he he said that he needed to win something for it to feel like, more like home. And I think that was true. Lee, you must have, I mean, I know we're talking about comebacks, uh, but you must have 2-0 down, must have been looking at that defending, thinking, what are you doing? Yeah, well, I was doing the cup final for ITV, so we were kind of... Um, kind of involved in in the broadcasting of it but you're still a fan you still want you know you still want your team to win and uh, but the bonus of that is that's the best type of game to broadcast for your team being down so you've got loads of stuff to do in the analysis wise you've got loads of things loads of little tricks and little paints things to do at half time and all that lot and then they go on on win so it's a perfect day for me Perfect day for all of us, I think. Um, Lee, we're going to let you go now. It's been lovely uh, talking about this stuff with you. Nice to speak to you. See you soon. See you next week. Hello, everyone. This is producer Tayo. Now, I've been in isolation with absolutely no one to talk to except a miniature Pro Stars model of Thierry Henry from his Monaco days. So the guys have let me read this ad. I've also read all of my shoot annuals and reread both of Ian Wright's autobiographies. So I was a bit worried I was running out of football content to consume. Luckily for me, The Athletic is still home to 400 of the best sports writers out there. And in these very strange and uncertain times, they are all still hard at work telling unique, engaging and informative stories. The Athletic can keep you connected to the teams, the players and all the sports you love. Just go to theathletic.com forward slash Arsenal pod, sign up now for a 90 day free trial and go and see for yourself. Ian Stone here with Amy Lawrence and James McNicholas, the writers for The Athletic. Uh, James, you've been writing about uh, Pierre-Emerick Aubameyang and how it's a slight misnomer that he's been playing out on the wing. Yeah, well, I mean, he has played there plenty this season, but what's started me off with this is Aubameyang's got 49 Premier League goals and he was sort of... We were all waiting for the 50th. Obviously, we might be waiting some time for it now, but in the build-up to that, I'd been doing a bit of research and... What really jumped out at me was that he tends to score more goals when he plays from the left than he does when he's through the middle. He's about 0.56 goals a game, a goal every other game through the middle, and 0.8 goals a game from the left, which sort of, it's funny because your eye tells you he's in the wrong position, he's not a winger, but he really, really benefits in terms of the positions he takes up and the goals he scores. And I mean, I just hope it's Arsenal's problem for a while yet. I hope it's Arsenal's conundrum because... You know, who knows? Who knows how much more of him we might see in an Arsenal shirt? Don't you think when you see someone like Ronaldo, uh, Amy, that, you know, he's he's the perfect example of someone who really, he does play out wide and then he cuts in and shoot. And the fact that he can shoot like he does with either foot, he's lethal. And um, I'm surprised more forwards don't want to play, you know, facing the goal. Yeah, it's a good point, actually. I mean... I just admire Aubameyang as a player so much um, and, it, you know, it may well be, as James alluded to, that his Arsenal career is not a particularly long one and in a way it maybe reminds me of someone like Mark Overmars who actually, you know, still feels like a really big and important Arsenal player uh, but his time at the club was quite brief. I think it was maybe only two and a half seasons. You'd really hope for Aubameyang to be 
doing his thing um, in the Knoxville for a, a, you know a long a long time to come. But I think even in the t- short time that he's been here, and remember the first half season was a really strange time because he came in the January and he was cup tied with that weird European rule that he played uh, for another club in a different competition. I think he played in the Champions League for Dortmund in the in the group stages and then wasn't allowed to play for Arsenal in the Europa League in the you know in the uh, knockout stages which is in a rule they subsequently changed because it's obviously idiotic but it did mean that he didn't even have that much game time because the Europa League became so important in that uh, in that period so he had a real not that easy introduction in terms of settling in he was in the team he was out the team uh, and to have established himself in the way that he has playing different positions um, I think his character is first class. He always plays, seems to play with that kind of optimism, um, positivity. Uh, he doesn't seem to have that massive ego that is saying, I need to be doing this. I need to be playing there. I, you know, I need to make sure I score the goals. The fact he was generous in giving, for example, penalties uh, to other players so that they can get um, a booster. I just think he's a wholly admirable, brilliant player. One of those that you think you dearly hope that they'll have something concrete as a recognition of how good they've been for the club in the form of some kind of a trophy. And I think it saddens me when I think of all the reasons that that dreadful uh, Cup Winners' Cup final against Chelsea in Baku, all the all the things to do with that, it saddens me that sort of for, for Aubameyang in particular, to an extent, like I said, guys who really got that team there and carried them through that season didn't get, the trophy that maybe you know their career has deserved more silverware neither of them have won a lot so i think it's still something in front of them i think it's funny that we've been talking about favorite fa uh, favorite cup finals and i i mentioned birmingham james mentioned nine from the halfway line and you mentioned Baku. <laughs> but uh hey we have had some uh, downsides you can't enjoy the can't have some sunshine if you don't get any rain wasn't that uh, dolly parton anyway amy you've been writing about uh not favourite Arsenal goals. I suppose it is favourite Arsenal goals, isn't it, really? And you, I noticed you did a little um, poll on Twitter. Uh, I'm assuming Mickey Thomas won by a distance. Yes, he ended up with uh, over 50% of the votes. Uh, and then the, the next was Dennis and the next one was um, Thierry. And then there was a few sort of, you know, lots of people proposed some absolutely phenomenal goals, either brilliant for their sort of individual uh, aesthetic value or for their importance everything from Charlie George in 71 to Giroud's scorpion kick um, to Ian Wright in Auxerre a goal oh. that a, a lot of us will remember as feeling really important as well as being really brilliant kind of a game that was a bit reminiscent of the Palmer game actually that's what that Arsenal team at the time was capable of in one-off cup competition games I had a gig that night as well by the way have you watched any football (laughs) we had to wait it was at Kingston University a notoriously difficult student gig and we had to wait for the game to finish which I was glad about because they were showing it in the bar and right he got that goal what what an amazing amazing goal I actually I Um, started smoking at half time of that game it was so tense (laughs) (laughs) James you'd have to agree wouldn't you Mickey Thomas I mean I know you were you were only one at the time or possibly not even one at the time but uh, in terms it's of difficult, it's difficult to look past it isn't it I think you know given its significance given the drama given the stakes 
I think that is the one. I think there are other goals that you love aesthetically. You know, I, I mean, Thierry Henry's got a goal against Liverpool featured in Amy's list, but there are so many Thierry Henry goals yep. that could feature in that list. Um, I, I'd give a shout, actually, as a sort of a, a cult favourite goal, if you will, for Olivier Giroud's Scorpion goal, just for the pure <laughs> absurdity of it. In ter- like, you know, this six-foot-plus guy flying through the air and scoring off the back of his heel in off the bar. I, it's one of the two, few times in my life I've been properly dumbfounded by what's happened in front of me. It was incredible. There was there was also quite a lot of shouts for the Wilshire uh, goal against Norwich, just for yeah, the nature of it being goal. symbolic of that kind of artistic team play that was probably Arsenal at its best under Arsene. And I thought it was interesting because, you, know, you know, it was a game that I can't even... I can't remember the score, you know. Um, it wasn't a game that lives long in the memory, but the goal did because it sort of meant something about what, you know, the values that uh, that Arsene always talks about when he tries to talk about the style of Arsenal. So, yeah, I mean, that's the, the beauty of these kind of um, chats is that what is the greatest? So it can, you know, something can be great for so many different reasons. But yeah, I'll always, I'll always go for Mickey Thomas in any conversation. And I'll never have to think for more than a millisecond. But that's a personal thing. Yeah, but uh, over 50% of the uh, public agree with you, Amy, and me included, by the way. Um, We need a bit of music before we go. James, uh, what have you got for us? Well, I suspect this might be a controversial choice, but given that we were talking about cup finals, I had to look at the Arsenal cup final songs. And I have very, very fond memories of the Arsenal version of Hot Stuff from 1998. (laughs) Uh, So that would be where my vote would lie. Amy? <laughs> one one uh, uh, piece that we haven't mentioned that's in The Athletic this week is James's absolutely outstanding piece about Garnosaurus, by the way. Yeah, um, and people think people think we're running out of stuff to talk no, about. No, 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 no. This games. is a seriously <laughs> brilliant piece of writing. And if, you, if dear listeners, if you have not yet checked it out, I beg you, if you read one piece this week, make it James's Garnosaurus piece. It's class. Anyway, inspired by that, uh, I've gone for There Might Be Giants and I Am a Paleontologist. Very nice. (laughs) Yes, I don't know the song. It's brilliant as well. Check it out. I mean, as we were talking about cup finals, um, it's not a song I particularly like, but I Need a Hero by Bonnie Tyler. (laughs) Just um, makes me laugh. Some of your choices, Tony. Yeah, I know. Listen, you don't have to choose them. I'm just putting them out there, okay? I do like that blow-dried hair, though. Um, We're done. Thank you to Lee Dixon thank you to Amy Lawrence and thank you to James McNicholas Uh, thanks also to Taya Papula uh, for producing and putting it together this is Ian Stone saying thank you for listening to Handbreak Off for The Athletic look after yourselves (laughs) 